Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending September 10. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you'll hear about how Bobby is a bit of a tight ass when it comes to changing her phone over, but also knows how to keep them going for a very long time. Uh, we're also joined by Hugh DeGretzer from the Human Rights Law Centre to explore mandating vaccination. We have a chat with Elizabeth McCartney. Her book review this week is of second place by Rachel Cusk. Uh, we chat to John Safran about his new book, Puff Peace, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight and Burned Down the English Language. And then we talk about how good house cleaners are for share houses. Tosca Luby, director of the SBS documentary Strong Female Lead, joined us to talk about the tenure of Julia Gillard PM and food interluder Michael Harden told us all about Negroni Week. Triple R. I had this uh, flip-top phone when I was about 18 or 19, I think it was. Uh, prepaid, it was like... Electric Blue was the daggiest phone you've ever seen, but I bloody loved it at the time. Um, and I remember running out of credit and I, I went to send a text message. I was just like, oh, just hopefully I've got 30 cents to send a text message. I went to send it, um, and it and it went through. And I was like, oh, thank God. And someone's replied and they've asked me another question. I was like, oh, God. So I tried again <laughs> and it's sent. And I was like, oh, okay. And then I realised I could continue sending messages without credit. I don't know if there was some loophole but I was like making the most of it and kept sending text messages. Guess how long I was able to send text messages without recharging my phone? How long? 12 months. Get out. One year. I went a year without recharging. Of course, oh, I, I was the tight ass that wouldn't call people though because <laughs> I couldn't actually call. So I was just, yeah, sending text messages until I think in the end, I don't know, it was a partner or a friend or whatever. They're just like, you need to recharge so that you can call me, like if I need to, if I need to make a call. So I ended up recharging. I was spewing. I was like, I had a year of free text messaging. I cannot believe that. Neither could I. Yeah. Never has a telecommunications company <laughs> come out on the bottom of anything. Right? They always come out on top. Yeah. Oh, no, I think they've more than made up for it, though, in my lifetime, to be honest. Um, <laughs> is it, sorry, is this like a conversation from 2004 or something? Yes. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Which, credits... which is 18. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So credit's not yeah, a thing 2000. anymore so much. No, well, well, really, I not actually, really. Well, it is it's funny. I, I, I just gone, recharged my phone. Then. I was going to say I literally huh. just went back onto prepaid. Oh, now, that's it. So I, since then, I, I've been going on plans and whatever else for for two years, and then just continually updating your phone whenever you plan and you get a new phone. I was like, bugger this! I've got a really good phone. It's only two years old. It's fully paid now. I'm just going to go to prepaid. So I've been going to prepaid again, and I tell you. Ever since the plan ended, my phone is just deteriorated. Like it is just, I mean, the first thing that goes is the battery. And I was like, oh, okay, I had to get recharging the battery. So I did that for a while. And then I got a new battery. So I'm like, okay, I paid 70 bucks for a new battery. So this phone should be perfect now. Mm. And then all of a sudden, everything else in the phone has just deteriorated. Like Mm. it's just, even the service. It's a scam. It is such a scam. And so I've had this phone now for four years. So two years I've been buying prepaid and I think it's got to go. You're <laughs> like, truly a tight ass. Four years I, is an amazing I amount know. of time to hold on to one handset. Right? I thought so. Yeah. I, well, I was changing every two years, but I'm like, this phone, there's nothing wrong. Well, there's plenty wrong with it, actually. Um, to the point where whenever people call me, it just, it, it cuts out maybe after five minutes. Oh, mate, sometime. you are the most annoying human being. <laughs> 
I feel for Abby and all of your family. Well, she can't actually call me now. Like she's like, I can't. She has to text. She's like, I, I can't call. You need to get a new phone. I'm like, I was talking to our boss Beck about. Uh, I, I don't know what it was about, but it was important. And then my phone just cut out. I was like, Hello, are you there? Are you there? Three times we had to call her back. I'm just oh like, I, this doesn't happen all the time. These are just the worst cases because then I can go two weeks and calls will come through and everything's fine. I'm like, oh, the phone's fine. But then it doesn't. And it's just, I, I, I absolutely need a new phone. It works good as a computer, like on Wi-Fi. I can use all the apps and everything. everything it works else. good as a computer when, like, there is an alternative to a phone, which is a computer. I never thought that I was – I didn't think in any other aspect of my life am I a tighter. But apparently <laughs> when it comes to phone, I am just reluctant no, to upgrade or you know, buy. I totally get it because you get scarred from – I just feel like it's all a scam and you get scarred and I'm now on one of those things where you, you, I'm with a, I'm with a – company but i just yeah. update it monthly yeah yeah so i kind of i just had to do it with them because i realized that i had no service and it's because i hadn't updated my, hadn't <laughs> updated my credit, no credit. <laughs> exactly but i made the uh call to buy a phone outright a couple of years ago and to do this rather yeah. than go on plans because i got so mad my plans always ended up in me crying in a <laughs> telecommunication store and the employee going i'm just sorry there's nothing we can do <laughs> always and so I did this, but I'm also really, really prone to dropping phones. So what I didn't take into account was the fact that I was going to smash four phones that I bought outright, <laughs> which I've done. Oh, no. The most recent of which was Damn. this. I bought a good phone when, when, when I was um, about to give birth to June because I thought, oh, I want to have nice pictures of a baby. That's actually what yeah. I thought. I thought, what else do you do? All you do is take photos of your baby. That's, I don't need a phone for anything <laughs> else right now. And so I bought a one with a good camera in it uh, and – I reckon when June was about two months, we Andrew and I went for a walk and it was one of those kind of get out of the house, you're going mad, stress yeah. walks with mm-hmm. the baby where let's just like recalibrate. Yeah. And we're on this really lovely walk and it was a really sunny day and Andrew goes, let me just take a photo of you, us on this lovely walk. It's like our second walk out of the house. And he picked up my phone and someone Andrew is someone who never does anything wrong in that he's quite coordinated. And he picked up my phone and just dropped it because we were so tired and just shattered everywhere on the ground. (gasps) And so I stood there bawling my eyes out, like bawling with this newborn and Andrew in this shattered phone. And I knew everyone was looking at us like I was I'd lost the plot. But I at that moment I was like, this is one phone too many. Yeah. At a point in time where I can't take it anymore. Mm. And then the rest of the walk was just me sobbing. Oh, no. About this phone that had been smashed, it was terrible. Anyway, then I got Ugh. a new phone, and now I have this like mum-proof case on it. I have noticed that. It's yeah. so embarrassing. It's one of those <laughs> like wallets that got you wrap cards. around the phone, yeah. and I've dropped it so many times. No smashes. Ah, when you've dropped it previously, have you just changed the screen? Do you buy a new screen? Or yeah, I have. I have bought a new screen uh, before, but sometimes it just never. It often just doesn't work the same. Yeah, um, right. and sometimes I've just actually smashed it so badly that the, <sighs> that the screen is kind of indented, and they just go, "Oh, there's not. It's going to affect the pixel quality or whatever it might be." Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this planned obsolescence. Is it's hard to know when it's wear and tear or when it's a conspiracy against you. Oh, it's, it's absolutely always a conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also how many products are there in the world that look really beautiful 
but you can't keep them beautiful. They need gross mum cases. I know. It's like it's yeah. such a scam, mm. but we've all agreed to go along with it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and as far as the photo things go, you know, Jesse's bought a camera because I don't want Gabriel associating phones with good times and memories. Oh, and, yeah. and I don't play music out of the phone because I don't want him associating music with the phone. Anyway, I'm like uh, just – and also, when you get a new phone, it's like, okay, this is, what, five years of my life. I'm staring at this freaking thing. Like, how many phones do I have left before I cark it? <laughs> how many phones? Are... Is that the most Daniel Burke line of all time? Oh, you just take it to death. Oh, you got about 25 more of these left. I'm Bob, dead. Thanks. Bobby's got two. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Victoria's Premier Dan Andrews recently announced there's going to be a vaccinated economy and you get to participate in that if you are vaccinated and flagging that a vaccine passport pilot program would soon be trialled in venues such as pubs and restaurants in the state. To discuss the vexed issue of vaccine passports, mandating vaccinations and other issues, we're joined for Brass Tax this week by the Executive Director of the Human Rights Law Centre, Hugh DeCretza. Hugh, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Now, the Human Rights Law Centre is called the pandemic a global human rights crisis. In what ways do you see this crisis presenting itself? Well, um, you know, primarily it's a it's a massive threat to people's right to life and to health. Obviously, this is a, a, a hugely contagious disease that uh, threatens life and health, but it also threatens our human rights in the way, uh, looking at the way the governments respond to the pandemic. So, uh, we, we know that limiting movement, limiting contact uh, prevents transmission of the, environment, uh, of the virus. So governments have uh, introduced a range of often severe restrictions to protect life and health, uh, affecting our work, our education, our freedom of movement, our ability to worship, to see friends and family and the like. And uh, from a human rights perspective, it's all about getting that balance right between how, looking at how do we protect our life and health without unreasonably restricting uh, other human rights. And, and it's into that sort of frame that we're looking at the issue of, of vaccine passports and vaccine workplace mandates. So in the balance between health and freedoms, what are your biggest concerns? Well, I think um, the, the starting point when you look at um, uh, vaccination is that uh, there has been an incredible um, uh, development from medical science to produce this vaccine. The vaccine has shown to be uh, very effective in uh, preventing transmission, uh, from stopping you from getting the virus, stopping you from passing it on, and uh, and, and uh, more, most importantly, preventing you from going to hospital or dying from uh, the virus. So it's it's a very effective vaccine. Uh, it shows uh, a way out of this pandemic and it also shows a way out of, uh, you know, we're all in lockdown at the moment. It shows a way out of this lockdown. So um, uh, it's, it's, it's a great development. The, the, the question is, and, and it's critical to our right to health to have access to uh, this life-saving vaccine and access on an equitable basis. Uh, obviously, we can talk about global issues on this and poor countries and rich countries, but just looking um, across Australia, um, what's really important that we have a, a, a very effective uh, and equitable vaccine uh, rollout. And what we're seeing at the moment is 
the, the vaccine rollout has been slow. Um, some of the communication, particularly around the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine has been really mismanaged, and uh, and and but that's changing, and and the vaccine supply is uh, accelerating, particularly over the next uh, couple of months, and uh, and and the focus now needs to be on equitable supply and equitable access of this vaccine. So let's get to brass tacks on the human rights issues. So mandating vaccines, we'll start there. Uh, looking at the right not to be subjected to medical treatment without consent. What does the Human Rights Law Centre have to say about that? Yeah, so uh, uh, we, we don't have a national charter of human rights in Australia. It's something that we're trying to change, but we do have a charter of rights here in Victoria, and uh, that protects a, a range of our human rights, and one of those rights is the right not to be uh, subjected to medical treatment without consent. And uh, it's important when you think about our human rights to recognise that all rights can be, uh, under, under our Victorian Charter, can be limited. And this is a critical point for our listeners to understand. You can only limit a right if you have a good reason for doing it and you do it in the, a reasonable, the least restrictive way in a free and democratic society. So broadly, that means that uh, you, you can restrict a right to protect life and health but you need to use the lowest level of restriction to get the job done. Uh, and when we're talking about vaccine passports or vaccine mandates, uh, uh, people aren't talking about uh, forcibly compelling people to uh, be injected with the vaccine. What they're saying is we're looking at ways that we can incentivise vaccine uptake uh, or penalise people if they don't have the vaccine. And uh, that's by uh, saying you won't be allowed to, to go to pubs and restaurants or to travel or you won't be allowed to work. And that's a very... Um, serious consideration. Uh, we think that uh, there will be circumstances where vaccine mandates and vaccine, um, vaccine workplace mandates and vaccine passports will be justified. Uh, but we're worried at the moment because uh, when you look at the Australian population, about 40% have, uh, uh, have had uh, the double dose of the vaccine, uh, about 60% have had a single dose. So we think the focus right now absolutely has to be on uh, fair uh, supply and access and then we can start thinking about uh, whether or not we introduce vaccine passports and vaccine mandates. There's some exceptions, of course, high-risk areas like aged care, healthcare, disability services. There's a much more compelling reason why you would introduce a vaccine workplace mandate in those settings. What right does a human right to privacy play? Or what role, rather? Yeah, a cr critical role, um, you know, particularly when you're, when you're talking about uh, sensitive health information, for example. So there will be some people who uh, cannot have the vaccine. They will um, uh, have a risk of uh, sometimes serious medical conditions if they... So there some people are allergic to particular vaccines, for example. And you need if you're going to have a system of workplace mandates or um, vaccine passports, you need to have exemptions for people who, for, the, for genuine medical reasons, can't have the vaccine. Um, and, and so that's private medical information. How do you look at protecting that information? How do you um, look at issues around um, uh, the fact that not all of us have access to internet, computers, uh, smartphones, for example? How do you, if you have a, a digital vaccine certificate system, which is the proof for you to be able to access goods and services, how do you make sure that's also accessible to people who don't have that uh, kind of digital technological access as well? So these are some of the issues that governments and employers and, and uh, businesses need to be working through when we're looking at this 
uh, important issue of vaccine mandates and, and vaccine passports. Has the slow rollout of the vaccine bought you some time or bought us all some time to have a think about these issues as we look at what's going on around the world? Well, it's it's created risk <laughs> for people's uh, life and health, and unfortunately, it means we're we're further away from being out of lo- the the cycle of lockdowns. Uh, so the the slow vaccine rollout has has been disappointing. The the messaging around AstraZeneca and the confusing messaging for people, you know, when you have the prime minister or the the expert bodies or the chief health officers disagreeing on when the AstraZeneca vaccine should be used uh, that that makes people worried about the vaccine and uh, and and of course the, the the evidence is this is a very safe vaccine there are some serious but extraordinarily rare side effects uh, that need to be taken into account That's why informed consent is important uh, but yes um, we're, we're a member of the international network of civil liberties organizations national human rights organizations around the world we are looking actively at what is happening in other jurisdictions around the world and looking at the the, the human rights balance if you like uh, about how we get this right in all those jurisdictions and, and I saw in Singapore for example this morning uh, that they, they brought in um, in the news this morning they brought in uh, uh, vaccine, uh, in, uh, international travel for um, quarantine, for tr- free travel for people who are fully vaccinated. And so uh, these issues will increasingly come to Australia. We've been slow on the vaccine uh, rollout, um, but as that accelerates and as we give everyone the opportunity to have had the vaccine and then we look at how we're going with our vaccine rates and whether we're up to that 80%, whether we're hopefully uh, well beyond it, um, then we um, will be looking at, you know, how do we incentivize or how do we um, create rules around who has access to um, goods and services and things like that. We need to tread cautiously from a human rights approach. The, the best approach is the lowest level of restriction to get the job done. If we can get there with voluntary measures, incentives, uh, health promotion, good communication campaigns, that's that's what we should be doing as the first resort. Uh, you know, the compulsory measures, the penalties uh, should be a last resort. Have you found civil liberties to be a bit of an unfashionable cause in a pandemic? <laughs> Uh, actually, the, the 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 opposite. It's um, uh, the, the, there's obviously people wrongly claiming their civil liberties not to wear a mask at Bunnings and the things like that. But but what it, what it's done is it's put human rights at, at the forefront of everyone's minds. People are asking why can't what what are the rules that um, mean that I will get a, a huge fine if I travel 5.1 kilometres from my house? What are the rules that prevent me from working, from, from educating? Um, and uh, what we have in Victoria is a, a charter of rights that governs those things, has that test around balancing, and it, it acts, if you like, like a compass to guide governments to make the right decisions, uh, and, and it helps the community to be able to judge those decisions. Are governments getting it right? Are they doing enough? Are, uh, are they uh, doing too much? Are they overreaching? And there's been cases where governments have uh, uh, absolutely overreached. Unfortunately, we don't have that human rights charter at the national level. Like I said, it's something we're trying to change. But what we're seeing is um, 
uh, increasing concern around people's human rights and increasing realisation about the lack of human rights protection in Australia and, uh, unfortunately, some people wrongly claiming their human rights in situations where there is no you know, right not to wear a mask in, in, in Bunnings. Um, you know, requiring people to wear masks indoors is in a, in a global pandemic, which is transmissible in an airborne capacity, is, is clearly a... Uh, if there is a restriction on the human right, it's a, it's a it's a very very justifiable restriction. Well, the Human Rights Law Centre website is hrlc.org.au, and we've been speaking with Hugh de Kretzer, Executive Director of Human Rights Law Centre. Thanks very much for chatting with us this morning. Cheers. Thanks for having me on. Triple R. Elizabeth McCarthy is here to bang on in the best way about books. Morning, Elizabeth. Hey. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Bobby. How are you going? Very well. Sweet as. Very well. You're on your Radiothon come down week, of course. Yeah, crashing yes. hard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> terrible Tuesday. <laughs> well, I hope I can brighten things up for oh, you good. with my book review of um, the one and only Rachel Cusk. Now, in the global literary world, Rachel Cusk is um, kind of a bit of a big deal. And, you know, in this very sort of British way, as sort of a bad girl of English lit. So she's written about her personal life, including the collapse of her marriage and including lots of ambivalence um, about motherhood and the place of women as mothers. And she's sort of been quite, um, I guess, blunt and confrontational to a lot of people about um the women's a woman's sort of place in the world, um, and her fiction is um, apparently thinly disguised autobiography. And you know how sometimes I've said on this show, if if Janet Malcolm or if Helen Garner turn up at your doorstep asking to come in for a cup of tea, run for the hills, mm. uh, you know, run for your life. Well, I think Rachel Cuss kind of falls into that category of if she ever invites you to stay in the bungalow out back of her rural property, just politely decline that invitation. <laughs> RSVP, no. Um, because she just, you know, she's one of these writers who really – uses her her personal life as fodder for her books. And in the same way that, I mean, Janet Malcolm passed away earlier this year, these women are so incredibly formidable at what they do that they will draw a portrait of you that you will just not recognise yourself in and, you, you know, you'll be quite alarmed. So it's very crucial to remember how incredible these women are at the craft of writing and... Um, and Rachel Cuss's new novel has been long listed for the Booker. So the Booker Prize is announced. It's it's still probably the world's biggest um, and and most sort of widely known um, literary prize. And that's going to be announced. The winner will be announced, I think, November. So she's long listed um, for the Booker for this new novel, Second Place. And it's, again, just a work of genius from Rachel Cuss, this this really simple, short novel. The, quad, the plot is quite simple. Um, the lead character, M, is in a stable relationship with her partner, Tony, for many years. She has a daughter from a previous marriage. They're living on a rural property. And M decides to offer the cottage out back the second place, 
um, to artists to come and stay and do their work in peace in nature away from the madness of the contemporary world. So, so she and her partner and her daughter live in, you know, the main part of the property, the big house, and then out back is this artist's cottage that she happily um, lets – so she's something of a patron of the arts. So years earlier, um, M and – the lead character, the two lead characters are just known by their first initials um, and if I have time I'll get on to why that is. Um, so years earlier, M has been in Paris and she's come across the art of an artist called L. And for the first time, it seems, she has this experience of art taking her over and of being seen and at, and at one with L's art which is an experience that, you know, at some point every human being has, right? Some of us many times over, some of us have, have that experience every day, that sensation of hearing music or reading a book or watching a film where you identify so closely with the work that you feel seen by the artist and that the artist has a unique insight into you and, oh, my God, you know, how could they know me like this so intimately? It, it's a very common human experience. So she's in Paris Years before this, the action in the novel actually takes place, she's in Paris, she has this experience looking at Elle's art and she writes to Elle and says, hey, you want to come out and, um, you know, hang at my property, I've got this cottage, um, you know, where you can come and practice on your art and uh, you can do your art there and we'll be in our house, you can hang out with us if you want to, but um, just come and stay at our second place and make your art and Elle Elle has been a career artist. He's been a famous visual artist since he was really young and he's used to hanging around Europe and America apparently rent-free courtesy of the kindness of strangers and other patients, patrons of the arts, right, working on his art. And he says after, you know, after M writes to him a few times, he says, yep, okay, I'm coming. And so he turns up with a much younger woman called Brett and their relationship is unclear and he gets to work in the cottage and he makes his art. And M becomes increasingly infatuated with L and kind of outraged that he is interested in having everyone else on the property, that being Tony, um, M's husband, um, Justine, M's daughter, and M's daughter's boyfriend sit for him, but he will not ask L to sit for him to paint, you know, to paint her. So one of the most disturbing moments in the novel is when Elle does end up inviting M to sit for him and M dresses herself up in this symbolic outfit, traipses over to the um, – and symbolic as um, – I won't say what the outfit is, but it's, it's a very sort of um, – it's one of those outfits that you – only wear once or twice in your life. She traipses over to the cottage and basically humiliates herself. And from that point, things come crashing down. And so M is narrating this story. It's in the first person. It's a very formal and traditional and you might say old-fashioned way of telling a story. It's a very traditional novel. And she's, she's telling this story to a person called Jeffers. She's telling, basically, she's addressing this person called Jeffers in the novel. We don't know who Jeffers is. We never meet him and it's never explained who Jeffers is that she's addressing throughout the novel. But that's who she's sort of writing the novel to. And this novel is a psychological portrait of a woman who is infatuated with an artist. Um, she can't really separate his art from him. She wants things from him that he cannot give her. 
but and and she is potentially going to blow up her life in pursuit of him. And one of the most confronting things about this novel is how smart and psychologically mature this woman is. She's been around the block a few times. You know, she's built herself a life. And yet, to my mind, she still has this teenager's predicament of confusing the art with the artist to the point where she's willing to abandon everything. Because as a human being, this particular artist, let me tell you, (laughs) I certainly wouldn't want him as a house guest. He is uh, rude, vain, cruel, and just not particularly great company. Um, I mean, you know, you could call him, I suppose, tortured, but that just excuses all sorts of average behaviour. So So how come – so it's a novel – but so how come you wouldn't want to stay with her? Is it because you, her gifts as a fiction writer would render you in 3D or because it's fiction but it's a bit blurry? I, would, I mean, I would just be paranoid about turning up as a character in one of her novels. <laughs> 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 so is it easy to follow the thread? you got M and an L and an unknown Jeffers. It sounds pretty, you know, intriguing. As you're even it's reading really it. It's really intriguing. And she has like, so she's based this novel on a memoir that um, that someone who I don't know called Mabel Dodge Luhan, who I guess is a writer. It, it's, it's Luhan's memoir of the time that D.H. Lawrence came to stay with her. So she writes, so Rachel Cuss writes this at the end of the, the book, is that I've based this novel on a memoir of the time D.H. Lawrence stayed on this rural property and this is kind of intended as something of a tribute. Okay. So that's... Layer upon layer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, layer upon layer upon layer. So you get to the end of the book and that's revealed and it's like, I don't know why you just didn't say that in, in the beginning. <laughs> yeah, because it's not a major spoiler or anything. No, it's not a spoiler. And I don't know why she mentioned that at all much, really. But anyway. Hmm. Uh, yeah. is, is it like, did you enjoy it? It sounds a bit anxiety-inducing. Oh, I loved it so much because oh. she's such an incredible writer and she's one of those writers. Um, something else I guess I flagged on this show a few times is I just love writers who write bold, confident sentences about the universal human condition or and about their characters so so for example this is how she sums up her husband at one point or not sums him up but this is an aspect of her husband tony is not someone who interferes lightly in the course of things knowing as he does that to take on the work of fate is to incur full responsibility for its consequences i mean that's just one sentence yeah Mm. another example of her her boldness, her comp- her confidence, her her sort of searing insight into the human condition. Hence, why you should all be paranoid if she ever. Right. <laughs> do you do a lot of pausing as you're reading to contemplate? Yes, totally. I mean, I um, I yeah. Someone someone said to me that I can get quite noisy when I read a novel because I I do <laughs> I do. Uh, swear at novels, I kind of, yeah, I sometimes wonder what my neighbours think when I'm reading novels because, you know, particularly when I'm dazzled, I just sort of get a bit carried away and wound up and, you know, wrapped up and, um, and, and this novel is kind of, you know, it's, 
pretty perfect. Dead set. Yeah. Oh, I love the vision of Elizabeth the noisy, no- yeah. the noisy novel reader. The noisy reader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I should also say, like, Rachel Cuss writes about um, one of the disconcerting things about her novels is they're set in the contemporary world, but no one's really doing much contemporary stuff. I mean, people are catching planes and renovating houses, but mm. they're not they're not kind of scrolling TikTok. They're not, um, you know, talking about Netflix. They don't seem to engage much with sort of modern media. Obviously not in lockdown. No, yeah. no. Yeah, no, yeah, so they're sort of living very sort of old-fashioned lives in some respects, but in the contemporary world. And that's another thing I really like about her novels as well, that you just get sucked into this sort of this world that she creates from her imagination. Did you explain characters referred to by letters or will there be people wondering what that's about? I don't know. I don't think it's unusual for formal novels novels to do that, though, Daniel. Like, so so there are characters that have full names, like Justine and Tony, in this novel, but the the two lead characters just have initials. And I mean, that that's a formality that sometimes happens in quite traditional novels, doesn't it? Yeah, you yeah. just said at the top that you would explain it if we had time. Oh, yeah. Um, do we have time? <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> oh, so I just wanted to flag it in case people were itching to know why. Oh, no, no, I'll just leave. I'll just leave You that. just leave I, it I there. Feel like I've kind of, I feel like I may have revealed too much. Okay, about okay. <laughs> just pick it up. It's, uh, it's called Second Place by Rachel Cusk, and I think it's out via Alan and Unwin. Is that correct? Um, no, it's not. It's out by Faber and Faber. Okay. And- I also wanted to flag how perfect the title is. So second place is obviously means, you know, the second place on this rural property where the artist can go and make their art. But it also talk, it's, it's a reference to the lead character feeling like she's second place. Yeah. Beautiful. Pick it up. It made Elizabeth noisy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. See you soon. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. John Safran is a writer, film and podcast maker, an author whose debut book, Murder in Mississippi, won the Ned Kelly Award for Best True Crime and whose follow-up, Depends What You Mean by Extremists, was shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Awards. His latest is Puff Piece, how Philip Morris set vaping alight and burned down the English language. And to tell us about it, the former breakfaster joins us now. John, welcome back to the show. (laughs) Why aren't you in there? It seems so unfair. I know. It's absolutely (laughs) rotten. Um, two layers because I can... Obviously, there's the the screen here, my computer screen, but you're also behind the Bain Marie. Yeah, like, yeah. Bar glass. Yeah, yeah, it's a real prison visit situation. Um, now, John Safran takes on tobacco giant Philip Morris. What makes this a 2021 scandal? Well, I was. Uh, it was before World No Tobacco Day. The day before that, a couple of years ago, uh, the United Nations Day to try to like, kill off cigarettes. And Philip Morris, the Melbourne people, took out full-page ads saying that they were going to close down as a cigarette company and relaunch as a health enterprise because they'd realised just how bad cigarettes were. Like, it, it clicked gelled one day. Like, oh, <laughs> the whole cancer thing and everything. And so I was, like, blown away by it. And I'm like, is this actually happening like, is this like the end of apartheid or the fall of the Berlin Wall? Because, like, so many people die of cigarettes still uh, a year. Like, we think it's this old issue, but really 
out of the 52 million people who die of everything each year, 8 million are cigarette-related. Mm. And, like, the hospitals are just filled with people and the cemeteries are just filled with people. So I was like, oh, my God, this is, like, an incredible story. And then I started poking around, and you'll never guess what. I shouldn't have taken the makers of Melbro cigarettes on face value. <laughs> <laughs> there was going on. And then I became confused with why this wasn't a story either way. Like, if it's the truth, um, obviously it's an amazing story, but if it's not entirely the truth, which it turned out not to be, then why is not that a story? Mm. I found it just very confusing that I was, I was the only one on the Philip Morris relaunching as a health enterprise beat. There. But there I was. Uh, and as you make the point that, you know, they have a responsibility to shareholders not to throw their own business under the bus. Yeah. So what have they done? So uh, they've come up with this new device, and it's not a vape. Uh, so that's just the, the first thing to try to make this confusing thing a bit less confusing. And the, 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 the reason they had to come up with this new product is because ac across Europe last year, their parliament, the, the European parliament, banned the production, the manufacture, the sales... Uh, of all menthol cigarettes. And, like, they'd want to ban all cigarettes, but they have to start somewhere. So this is, like, the beginning of the end for Philip Morris because, uh, you know, it's serious stuff. This is uh, actually banning cigarettes all across Europe. So Philip Morris, when they heard about this ban of menthol cigarettes, they said, okay, no, you're right, you're right, cigarettes are bad, we're on your side, we're on your side. We, we're going to stop manufacturing them. And then they said, hey, we've got this new uh, uh, product and uh, guys, and uh, it's uh, – God knows it's not a cigarette. It's a heat stick. And then they kind of like – they show the heat stick. I'll hold it up here. You can see me. Can you see me or not? Yeah. Yes, no, we can. see you. Yeah, no, we can see you. So they're going – and you look at this, and it's tobacco rolled in paper with a filter at one end – that you plant between your lips, inhaling nicotine and tobacco into your lungs. <laughs> and you hold it up to anyone and they go, hang on, is it, yeah, isn't that a cigarette? And Philip Morris is going, God knows, it's not a cigarette. It's a heat stick. And the, then the amazing thing was that it worked, that like last year menthol cigarettes were banned across Europe. You can't buy them. And Philip Morris have this thing that, kind of looks really a lot like a cigarette and seems to be a cigarette. And that you can still buy those because they substituted the word. And the and the European Parliament just didn't factor in what happens if Philip Morris releases a product <laughs> that really seems to be a cigarette and just say it's not a cigarette mm. and call it a heat stick. And it worked and yeah. they got away with it. And it all hinges on the words like smoke and tar. Yeah. So they changed, as well as changing the word cigarette to heat stick, <laughs> they, they say this is, what this is what they say. They say because cause he shove it into this device and it, instead of lighting it with a lighter, and they say it heats to an incredible degree, but it never actually catches a light. So when you heat tobacco to an incredible degree, this is what they say. So it generates this discharge that kind of looks a lot like smoke <laughs> and you're, you're inhaling this thing that kind of looks a lot like smoke containing nicotine and tobacco into your lungs, but they're saying that's not smoke, it's aerosol. 
And I was like, oh, okay, because I'm a bit of a sucker because I fell asleep during um, science in year eight and didn't wake up again until I started writing this book. Mm. So then, but then like one day I go, well, actually, what is aerosol? So I looked that up in the dictionary and it's giving the de- uh, definition and it's, it gives examples of aerosols and one of them is smoke. So the <laughs> fact that they're saying it's aerosol doesn't necessarily mean it's not also smoke. But they say it's not smoke for various reasons. Then the other thing is, I realise, because they say because it's not smoke, you're not inhaling smoke like you are with a cigarette. And smoke is the most that, – that's the dangerous thing in a cigarette. So we've, we've come up with something that's not generating smoke that you're inhaling. So therefore, it must present a, lo- a lower risk. <sighs> and, okay, let's go, let's go along with their way of thinking mm. that – it's not smoke. Okay, fine. I, I, I'll go along with that, right? But but I started, uh, I, I realised, it took me ages to realise they're so good at misdirection. And I only realised this, like, it was on about the third draft. Like, it was a, the book was about to go to the printers. And I realised they'd suckered me in one more time. Because it's true that the deadly thing in a cigarette is smoke. But more accurately, what's deadly in a cigarette is the tar in the smoke. So therefore, if this aerosol or whatever the hell it is in this heat stick, if that also contains tar, like who cares that it's not smoke? Yeah. You know? And that, yes, it did cancer is cancer. tar. So I'm like, stop the presses, stop printing my book. I think <laughs> I figured out the last sort of thing of them um, being really tricky or whatever, but yet, like, there's so much misdirection in what they do, and they're so brilliant at it. Mm. Like, um, even the way I, I explain what their new product is, the heat stick, at the start, that's not how they do it. They talk about the device, this, the, the heating device. So you're just focused on that, and you think it's something really brand new. It's like, oh, what's this thing? It's kind of like a vape pen or a pen or it's something. You plug in the wall and what – and they, they make you focus all on that. And then they don't draw attention to the fact that you what, what you slide into it, which is this thing that looks incredibly like a cigarette. <laughs> yes. Yet it's so not the, a. You make this point, and this is what you follow throughout the book. Too, yet it's not a vape. No, nah, because a vape. Um, that's like steam, and it doesn't contain tobacco leaf. A vape, and so, and that's what a cigarette contains. A cigarette contains tobacco leaf, which you heat up, which generates tar, which is the deadly thing in a cigarette. So a vape, because it doesn't contain tobacco leaf it doesn't generate tar so therefore people into vaping can fairly say that the most deadly thing that's in a cigarette tar isn't in a vape however there might be other there there are other dangers with vapes and because you're inhaling steam and it's got uh, propylene glycerol in it it's got flavorings in it it's got nicotine in it so uh you you know that's got its own um uh, dangers probably and you and might lead to respiratory problems or whatever but still i mean th- this is why philip morris is so good at just creating confusion because uh you look at it and kind of looks like a vape so therefore th- this is the the new product that philip morris has the the holder that you stick the heat in looks like a vape and in fact you plug it into a wall so you could say it's an e-cigarette like a vape is an e-cigarette even though they're totally two different products yeah and then and then when there's ever because sometimes some reputable – there's like some reputable bodies like the National Health Service from the British government and that, they, they say vaping is, a, is okay, like for helping getting yourself off cigarettes. 
So then Philip Morris jump around and go, oh, look at that endorsement from the NHS. They say e-cigarettes uh, are kind of something good or whatever. And uh, But then the thing is, the NHS, they're saying that about vapes. They're not saying it about this new Philip Morris product. But Philip Morris kind of can soak in the glory because this is you could say this is an e-cigarette and you could say a vape is also an e-cigarette. So they kind of like... They, they soak up the good news. But then when there were vape deaths in America with young people because they were buying black market vape juice, then some, suddenly Philip Morris would go, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Our thing isn't a vape, by the way. And, in fact, if you're worried about vapes, why not try our product, the heat stick and the ICOS, because that hasn't been implicated in all these deaths. So mm. they, yeah, they're, they're really clever. One of the delightful euphemisms is what tar is now, nicotine-free dry particulate matter. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it, yeah. it strikes me that, uh, you know, it might be go, why is Safran getting involved in, you know, public health and uh, science you know, and you all this? I care about the community. It's community, <laughs> <radio. laughs> community radio. Um, and, um, you know, what stick to cults and stick to religion. But there is a cultish vibe. There is, a, there is scripture. There is, you know, debate about language. It's still all there. And, of course, Philip Morris have their tentacles over everything like the Illuminati. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. Like, people will be so shocked, I reckon, by where their little where, where they've gone to uh, and where their tentacles. I was trying to think of another word for tentacles because it sounds so pejorative. What's another word? Um, where, where they've got their fingers, their, fingers <laughs> in a pie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if the worst thing, their claws or whatever. Yeah. Like for instance, um, they've got this foundation called the. I'm oh, sorry. They fully fund a foundation called the Foundation for a Smoke-Free Future. So anyone who listened to that is like, oh, that, they must be like against big tobacco because they're the foundation for a smoke-free future. But it's Philip Morris. They fully fund it. <laughs> and through that, they fully fund an Indigenous health organisation in um, New Zealand run by a Maori woman. And it's called like the – I forget – it's called the Centre for Research Ex- Excellency in, uh, in Indigenous Sovereignty. And it's got like a really, uh, you know, modern – word to it or whatever and through that they tell the story like the point of this organization they're sort of like a lobbying group and they they put the case for philip morris through sort of like the most modern woke kind of perspective which is that is their argument is that when you have like health bodies in new zealand because maoris smoke at a far higher rate in new zealand than new zealanders who aren't maori and so they say when these Government groups like try to get Maoris to Maori people to stop smoking. That's like white outsiders trying to tell Indigenous people what to do and denying them their own sovereignty. And it's just colonisation all over again mm. of white people trying to um, tell Indigenous people what to do. And <laughs> and so. And so somehow, like, the government's a coloniser, but Philip Morris isn't a coloniser or whatever. And they put out these reports, like, where there's this one report that they did, and they went to Fiji, and they talked about how smoking is part of the Indigenous culture there, like, that, that they drink the, you know, during, during a, a friendship ritual, they'll drink kava, that brewed uh, juice or whatever, and, and they'll also have a cigarette, so they're sort of like prosecuting the case or they're pushing the case that somehow smoking a Melbro is this Indigenous act 
It's like it's a didgeridoo. It's like a small didgeridoo. And therefore, if anyone comes in and says you shouldn't smoke, then you're a white colonizer who's telling uh, brown people what to do, um, just like Captain Cook did. Mm. And uh, needless to say, or maybe I do need to say it, that plenty of indigenous groups and indigenous people aren't buying this. It's not like it's not like it's not like his Philip Morris has funded this one group who says that that that's like somehow reflecting. Uh, you know, the thoughts of the Maori communities throughout New Zealand. In fact, they get a, a – um, there's a, a Maori health group who are like, what the hell is this? I cannot believe you're trying mm. on the whole uh, – tr- um, trying to kind of lower the death rate of Maori people <laughs> by lowering the cigarette smoking rate that you're somehow trying to make out that's a bad thing. And yeah. yet, oh, sorry, Daniel. I was just going to say, and yet Philip Morris seems to get a free moral pass in this yeah. book. Uh, you speak to your rabbi, you speak to Father Bob, and uh, you kind of try to investigate why no one is angry at tobacco companies anymore. Big tobacco is kind of out of fashion. I mean, you're a bit yeah. out of fashion, John, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, yet yeah. spo- smokers are the modern day, I mean, leper for want of a better term. You know, smokers are treated like scum of the earth. So what's that about? I think, well, I think there's a couple of things going on. So one thing is it just seems like a, such an unzeitgeist issue, smoking. It seems like, uh, haven't we just covered this in the 1970s? Like, oh, good one, good one, John. Yeah. Like, <laughs> why, why don't you just, like, grow some sideburns and, like, uh, <laughs> I'll take that personally. <laughs> and and, and this, this investigation or whatever. But so it's like, the, yeah, so it's this weird thing where it's just seen as this unzeitgeist issue compared with the kind of stuff that we'd think are like of the moment. Not, you know, good issues or whatever, but, you know, like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, trans rights, they seem like, oh, that's the, that's the modern issue. And then it's like, oh, cigarettes, oh, come on, John, we know all this stuff. But then, like, the weird thing is that for those kind of cancer cells growing in your body, <laughs> it's like it couldn't be more zeitgeist. And, you know, in the hospital units, like it's such a zeitgeist issue in the um, iron lungs and oxygen tents of the hospitals in Australia. Total zeitgeist issue for the hearse drivers driving all the people to the cemeteries because it's it's still the number one in 2021. It's like the number one health crisis in the whole world. I think I did I say this before where it's like I, um, 52 million people die of everything in a year across the world, and out of those, eight million are cigarette related. So that's how much of a a zeitgeist issue this non-zeitgeist thing is. So there's that. It just seems like a, for some reason it's out of fashion as an issue. Then everyone also thinks it's it's not an issue. And I think part of the reason is because the kind of hoity-toity people in the media bubble and the cultural tastemakers at the New York Times and Triple R breakfasters. Mm, yeah. So um, what, what happens is uh, – People, I, I, I tell you how I kind of figured out another reason why is that I, I went to I went to this Christmas party in this ma- uh, mansion in Brighton for this television producer, and we're, we're all drinking by the swimming pool. And then someone said to me, they, they said, "Hey, look around here. It's like a Christmas party. Everyone's getting smashed. Probably doing worse in the toilets or whatever." But like, no one's smoking. There's not not one person here at this. Uh, party in Brighton at this mansion is smoking cigarettes. And I was going, that is interesting. Not one person is. And then the next day I was wandering down Fitzroy Street past, uh, what's that? The Gat the one, the, 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 Yeah, the Gat Hotel or whatever that, 
And because the people were booted out of that because they wanted to use it for the block, it's like a homeless, little homeless city is set up around there. And I was looking around there and there was like not one person who didn't have a cigarette planted between their lips. Mm. So I think there's a big class thing going on where, uh, yeah, like uh, poorer people are still smoking cigarettes and then um, uh, uh, less poor people are not. So therefore, if you're not, if you're not hanging around the, the, sort of like the, in the poorer bubbles in a society, then you're going to think, oh, people, no one smokes anymore. But I think, I, I think it's like 10%, I think it's 11% of Australians still smoke. So that's, still, that's like millions. So millions do still smoke. We're going over time talking to John Safran about his new book, Puff Peace, how <laughs> Philip Morris oh, said... Well, hey, was that like a passive-aggressive... No, 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 no. It's encouraging. We're, we're just letting people oh, we're know. We're going over time. Yeah. <laughs> um, how are your... You can't get him to shut up. Oh, sorry, go how on. are your Philip Morris shares going? <laughs> oh, they're, they're going good. Because <laughs> <laughs> I bought shares in Philip Morris <laughs> because... Um, well, well, one of the reasons I bought shares in Philip Morris is so I can get into the shareholders' meetings, which was really handy. And I learned so much from them. I, there was another thing I learned about how we live in a bubble where we don't realise what the agendas of other people are, partially because we're in a bubble. Because as soon as I started listening to the shareholder meeting, I was going, oh, my God, if you work for Philip Morris, this is where this is your stressful day because – the people there, it's not like just mom and pop shareholders. It's like, uh, what you know, all these Wall Street companies, they all invest and uh, and you have to answer to them. And it's like, oh, my God, this is why if you're working at Philip Morris, you're not really – this This would uh, – what do you call it? This would trump being concerned that people are, like, calling you murderers on <laughs> Twitter. Like this – it'd be like, oh, listen, I can I can ride the wave of that. I don't mind that. I don't mind being dissed on Twitter for being a murderer, but I'm like too scared to turn up to the shareholder meeting <laughs> and not say that I've really increased sales, really increased uh, the financial future of the company. So yeah, it, it's like that, that. That that I mean, it's just so bleeding obvious. But yeah, it's so money would be really driving Philip Morris to continue not doing the right thing mm. because it'd just be so awkward to turn up to one of those shareholder meetings and just say, listen, um, sales went down, but don't worry, we're doing the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> and you, you, got, uh, a, you got someone to admit to you that don't worry, this ICOS device is still addictive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Because I realised, because they're so clever in their language and and all the – all the reveals or all the, the truth is in what they don't say, like what they avoid saying. And, and it, but it's really hard when you're listening to someone to go, well, what aren't they saying? <laughs> and because the truth lies there. And something seems so obvious once you do it. So one, one thing I noticed, I was hanging out in this world, reading all the stuff, talking to a thing. I just go, hang on, because they talk about how this is a better alternative, this new product. And what does that mean? Very bendy word, better, blah, 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 blah. And is it healthy? Is it smoke? Is it not smoke? Is it a cigarette? Not, is it tar? Is it not? All this stuff like that. And I was just thinking, hang on, why do people not like cigarettes? And it's like they give you cancer. And I was just going, no one's ever asked Philip Morris that about their new product. Like that's the answer. The answer to whether this is um, 
a good or bad thing that they're going through. The answer isn't like, oh, is this smoke or not smoke? Is this a cigarette or not a cigarette? Is it taro or is it nicotine-free dry particulate matter? Like the real thing is like, is this going to give me cancer like a cigarette gives me cancer? And no one has asked them that before. So I managed to get in on one of their science meetings and I asked the question for the first time. And, you know, I'll leave that up in the air as to what the answer is. Okay. Unless you're going to go, no, John, you can't do that. No, 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 <laughs> by the book. Um, and you've obviously a bit of a pebble in the shoe of Philip Morris, who I imagine you must have some grudging respect for, their sort oh, of totally. shamelessness yeah. and genius. Yeah, they, they, they are. They kept my brain alive the whole time because mm. they, they kept on tricking me. Yeah. They kept on, like, driving my car and then going, my God, that thing I read three weeks ago, I now realise. Yeah. They, oh, they got me again. And banking on people not going down the rabbit hole, like yeah. just assuming no one's going to have the patience for John Safran to follow this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so I suppose given that you are a bit of a pain to them, are you worried about getting Jeffrey Epstein? Uh, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking maybe they'll think there's no use in drawing more attention to it. Okay. Although, but having said that, yeah, I think that they they probably are annoyed with me because, yeah. uh, like in Australia, no one's heard of this. Like, even though they've released it in Europe and America, like in Australia, they haven't. And I've sort of got ahead of it. Like, I'm like their spokesman. And, <laughs> Like they, like, they probably don't mind me being on Triple R. They're like, oh, don't worry. Don't worry. It's okay. Don't don't worry. That's not Triple M. But then I am on Triple M. You know what I mean? And then I've done the project <laughs> and, I, like, I've just been in all the mainstream press, so it's like they'd be so annoyed. Right? <laughs> I think what we're asking Like, you, why I... is our spokesman, why is the person who's introducing this product to Australia? <laughs> like, how did, what did we do? What possibly, this is so unfair. What did we as yeah. Philip Morris, what have we ever done wrong that we deserve this? <laughs> but, but John, what a plot twist. John Safran's doing your product launch. <laughs> um, and it's, I, I just want to finish on, what was the rumoured, because ICOS, IQOS, yeah. rumoured to be uh, I quit ordinary smoking? Yeah, so, yeah, so what does ICOS stand for? And they, they say... They say it doesn't stand for. They go, it's only a rumor. It's 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 a rumor. Don't believe it. It's a rumor that it stands for. I quit ordinary smoking. It's like, how? Why would anyone start that rumor? Like, what's what's in it for your enemy to start <laughs> that? Like, I don't get it or whatever. But then I realized what probably happened. Uh, this is just a guess or whatever. Is they started developing this before they decided that their angle on it, their marketing angle, would be that this doesn't have smoke. So when they first developed it, they'll go, oh, let's, let's call it the ICOS, I quit ordinary smoking. And then it's at some later point, they're yeah. like, oh, hang on, no, we're going to say that this thing that really looks like smoke that comes out of the ICOS, we're going to say that isn't smoke. So therefore, uh. retroactively, their I quit ordinary smoking doesn't work because they do, they want their, their whole thing is this doesn't emit smoke. Yep. Don't play word games with a Scrabble champion, I suppose. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, it's Puff Piece, How Philip Morris Set Vaping Alight and Burned Down the English Language. It's out now via Penguin, and we've been speaking with its author, John Safran. Thanks very much, John. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. I've lived in um, a, a few different share houses over the years. Um, I, I imagine it'd be hard living in a share house during lockdown, like... 
it, oh, it's yeah. one thing to live. And, and I've a seen, bad share house would be hard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even if you kind of got along, it'd be tough when it's 24-7, wouldn't it? Mm. I, like I've seen friends kind of posting and, and having dinner parties and showing all the good stuff about it. But, yeah, living with five other people. It might be, it might be a bit civilising, though. Like if, oh, if you're yeah. going to lash out at your family or whatever, mm-hmm. it's like, well, I'm in a share house at least. I mean, you'd be seething and bubbling away on the inside. Yeah, but you'd yeah. have to keep it together yeah, more, do yeah. you think? Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. I think one of the main things that I found living in share houses is the domestic, so cleaning and, and stuff. You know, that that's probably the, the one thing that uh, builds tension. Oh, my in, God, so much tension. <laughs> I feel houses. like there's roster people and non-roster people. Yes. Mm. You guys are non-roster. Well, I think majority. No, I people. like a roster. Oh, you do? Yeah, only because actually, I never liked a roster. But then I lived with someone who just didn't want to clean, and yeah. so I said, "All right, we're having a roster." Yeah. They still ignored it, but it made me feel mentally better. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I think you're right. Um, I've lived in a couple of share houses where there's been people that haven't cleaned, and it's so frustrating. And who, I mean, who wants a confrontation in a share <sighs> house about who should be cleaning and, and all that kind of stuff? Um, I had a friend move in, in, like I was already living with someone, um, and they said, how would you guys feel about getting a cleaner? And we're like, oh, well, it's nothing that we've really had before. She's like, I just find it's easier, especially living in a share house. We all just pay like 20 bucks a fortnight. Uh, and then like you worry about your own rooms and everything, but that's something that mm. gets done. And at first I was like, oh, I'm not sure. And my other mate, to be honest, who didn't, who needed the roster, was like, oh, no, that's a waste of money. I was like, well, hang on a minute. Let's hear her out. <laughs> <laughs> and and we did it. And I tell you, it was it was one of the best things. I, you know, I lived in other share houses after that where it wasn't needed, but it was so perfect for that situation uh, because there was someone that wasn't doing as much work. And, you know, it's, it's always funny. The person that doesn't clean was the person that picked on the cleaner. Like, oh, they haven't done this right. Oh, well, they haven't done this right. Right, right, right. We're spending this money. It's like, oh, honey. Oh, no. <laughs> if they weren't here. What about the idea that you're – did anyone get their back up that you were subsidising that unclean person's laziness? Oh, uh, no, I guess because then we had to do less as well. Okay, So yeah, yeah. It, it worked out even. Mm. I love that as an idea. I can't yeah. believe I've never thought of it. I feel like it would be very hard to get an entire – share house to agree to that. Oh, definitely. However, it would solve so much tension. So much yeah. tension. I mean, who wants to clean the bathroom, especially yeah. in a share house? Like, bugger that. Um, I'm, when I moved to Fiji, part of our – and I was in my early 20s. I was there as part of an AusAid-funded program, and so we were given – I guess, government housing, and they came with staff. So we were told that everyone had someone that would be cleaning the house. Um, and for us, I mean, we had never had anything like that. And we're like, oh, okay, we're like, do, do we have to? And they're like, well, actually you do because that's their job and that's what they get paid to do and everything. So if you, you're going to be putting them out of work if you don't have it. So it was new for all of us. We had this lovely uh, Fijian lady that was um, with our house and every Friday, every Thursday we would go to the fish market and get big things, slabs of tuna, um, and then on Friday she would cook us dinner before she left. And so we got we would get an extra big tuna steak. Like I'm talking oh my God. a two-kilo tuna thing, and then she would take one home and she would cook us dinner. It, it was like having your mother there. It was so oh, wonderful. And I feel like that should be a thing that people offer here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. You just want your mum to come around once a week yep. in the share house and cook everyone dinner. <laughs> She'd make this delicious fish curry. It was, yeah, it was. It I'm was trying delicious. to think of what the business would be called. Something <laughs> about not rent a mum, but it's too. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's like, there's man with a van, but is there like. Mm. 
mum with a Prep. fish curry. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's that fish that rather than the mom? Um, there's, it, I'm not sure if this is common, but isn't, isn't, the, idea, isn't the idea um, that it's not necessarily clean or unclean, but people operating on different, like people are cumulatively cleany. For instance, you let things Cum- get messy. Cumulative. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. You let things get messy. Because you're busy or whatever, and then bam, suddenly it's like it's been deep cleaned by an expert rather than the rostered daily, you know, let's make sure no one goes to sleep with their dishes out sort of thing. (laughs) We just had, like, what the problem was was that it'd just get really messy, 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 and then it'd be like, well, who's going to vacuum? The house needs to be vacuumed at some Mm. point. The bathroom needs to be, so who's going to do this? And so we just had once a week, you do your vacuum, you clean the kitchen, and then we had this rotating thing for the bathroom yeah. And still, one of us, one of the one of the house members, just was so intentionally bad at cleaning the bathroom. <laughs> oh, that's I terrible. know that that was like their thing of okay, but I'm just still not going to clean it like shit. That we just said fine, just cut the lawns occasionally. If yeah. you could. like we just yeah. like said fine, you don't have to do the bathroom. It was just yeah. too much effort. Yeah. Um, but it was more just to stop the tension of the big stuff. So mm. little dishes and stuff, we all got pissed off at each other, but we didn't care too much. But yeah. it's just to like I think try and even it out. I'm yeah. Now in favour of. Uh, and I haven't heard anyone espouse this idea, but just replacing the toilet seat. Oh yeah, great idea. Let's get a new toilet seat. Before you before <laughs> Yes <laughs> Before you start. Before you move in, before, before move whatever, in. maybe every couple of you know, people change their beds or flip their mattresses. Yeah. So it's rather gonna... than cleaning it, just change it once a month. <laughs> Yeah, that's my solution. Oh. Mum with a fish Mom curry back in <laughs> For over 25 years, Tosca Luby has been a writer, director and producer of award-winning social and natural history docos across Europe, Asia and Australia. Her latest is Strong Female Lead, which looks back at Julia Gillard's three-year term in office, exploring the gender politics... During her tenure as Australia's first and still only female PM and ahead of its premiere this Sunday, the documentary director joins us now. Tosca, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, This film is made up of 100% archive material. It spans three years and three days of Gillard's term. What is it about this moment that makes it an opportune time to look back? Well, it's, I guess it's, you know, it's the 10 year period of looking back at the end of her, her tenure and, you know, a lot of those people who appear in the documentary are now in charge in Australia. The, the, the you know, the front benches then are prime ministers now. Um, so not much has changed. And I think that's the, the really shocking thing about this film is that not much has changed. When you uh, were going through all the material, were you, uh, were you surprised? Did you know what you were looking for? How did it come together? Well, we got a lot of questions, um, you know, whenever you put an idea together like this and take it to a broadcaster, they want to know if you can sustain it. And it is hard to prove that you could do that with archive because, you know, clearly you've got this huge exercise ahead of you to pull that together. You're kind of just guessing what's there. But on the basis that she was a woman who was in the news every day for three years, we knew there was a huge amount of archive out there. And then we were supposing that there were enough incidents that we could create the storyline, you know, to, to give the, the film a really solid 
um, narrative through the whole thing. But, yeah, a lot of people said to us, are you sure you're going to find enough material? And I tell you what, um, we there was so much material that when we started we thought, oh, my God, look at this. Can you be- believe that this happened? And then ended up not using it. Wow. So, yeah, we were spoiled for choice. Did you feel like when you were going through it all that early on in her prime ministership there was a moment or a person that kind of triggered all of this for Gillard or that did we just kind of hurtle hurtle into this? You know, it was from the first day that she was prime minister. So um, if anyone can cast their mind back, the very first trip she did was through a shopping centre and she wore this pretty appalling but whatever <laughs> coat um, and it was called the um, Technicolor scream coat and everyone in the media just went bananas about this coat and she said afterwards probably then she should have said you know what Uh, uh, we're not going to talk about my coat Um, and she never did she was shocked at the time but she thought okay that's you know that's just going to kind of be the first bit of excitement about a female leader and then that will die off but it never did. It's kind of striking seeing Gillard respond with some equanimity to some of the vile things that she's confronted with during interviews. Yeah, I actually found that really interesting that, you know, you'd sit there and think, why are you taking this? You're the Prime Minister. Why are you letting this happen? Um, you know, not that I was blaming her for letting it happen, but knowing that she's she's no shrinking violet, you know, certainly in question time she stands up and she gives it to people. So why didn't she do that with journalists? And I think for a lot of her prime ministership she was like a rabbit in headlights. She just couldn't believe what was coming at her and she was desperately trying to kind of manoeuvre some kind of path that would make it all work, but she could never find that path. She could never do it right. And... Um, but you do see an evolution in her over that those three years and you really see it in the film. I think, it, I mean, you know, we all went through it at the time and saw that she was disrespected, but it really is highlighted in this. Um, I, I was quite shocked, especially especially at the passing of her father and, and just the way that she was treating. It was, it was extremely disrespectful. Um, she always handled herself with grace and one of the things she said on the way out was, you know, hopefully she can make this easier for uh, future female PMs. Um, do you think it will be any easier or future PMs, again, female prime ministers, will go through the same scrutiny that she's been, um, that she's had to deal with? I think we've got a lot of work to make sure that that doesn't happen again. And I think it's going to take a really concerted effort from people to ensure that it doesn't, otherwise it will. I, that that um, system is still in place in Parliament and the Murdoch media is still so powerful and they were such a force behind what happened to her. So I think with with those machines still so strong, um, it's, it's very hard to imagine um, that anything will be different unless people rise up and really are conscious of it and, and really call it. And I think that is starting to happen. Do you think that Canberra agrees with this film? Like, and when I say Canberra, I mean the, the- the culture there, politicians now, our leaders now would watch this and agree that that was how she was treated, that this was specific to a female prime minister? Or do you get the sense that this is kind of, this story of hers is is dismissed as, um, you know, her just being a, a politician and all prime ministers are, are face this? 
Well, I've spoken to a lot of people. I mean, there's no interviews in this film. It is 100% archived. But in order to know what kind of avenues we'd go down, I did speak to a lot of people who were there at the time. And they talked about what had happened to her, but they talked about what had happened to a whole lot of other women as well. I mean, you know, women like Kate Ellis, who've come out more recently and written a book about what happened to her. Um, you know, Tanya Plibersek tells amazing stories. Um, you know, there's 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 so many stories there. And obviously what's captured on camera or in audio is a fragment of you know, the rest of the stuff that goes down. Obviously, Brittany Higgins is an example of that. So, uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, it's, it's still really rotten in there and I think there's a lot of people who still don't understand. Um, I'd say Scott Morrison is, is, is one of them, just, just does not understand what the problem is or has no compulsion to deal with it because why would you? Mm. Well, where's the benefit for him? Uh, your use of a choir in the documentary is quite novel. Yeah, that was um, – so the, they originally did do a, a version of the misogyny speech. It's called The Australian Voices and um, their composer, Rob Davidson, had taken the misogyny speech and turned it into a song. And I saw that and thought, oh, this is so great. <laughs> and so they – he then wrote the music for – the documentary, and and I I felt that that was necessary to 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 give it a bit of levity mm. when it's a pretty tough, you know, it's a pretty tough story. Were they saying singing big ass and things like that. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty hilarious recording. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you got former Prime Ministers Rudd and Turnbull campaigning against the power of Rupert Murdoch, uh, and. I think, was it Winston Churchill said that politicians complaining about newspapers is like a sailor complaining about the sea? Is there a bit of, you know, this is the game, I'm sorry, it's bad, but, and you know, it's an ugly side, but what are you going to do? Or is change something that you think we can work towards? Um, sorry, my dog's answering that question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think, you know... I- I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it, what Rudd's doing at the moment because Rudd is not a good figure in this film and I, and I do feel that Rudd um, in different ways kind of used what was happening to Gillard to his advantage. So you're right, you know, it, that that quote applies. But um, the the Murdoch media has is beyond everybody's control, I think, including politicians. And so, yeah, I think that is such an important battle. It's also interesting looking back at what a attack dog, how nasty Abbott was. Mm. It's really striking um, that the, yeah. the future Minister for Women um, was really effective and, and it's uncomfortable to see, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so shocking. And, and honestly, there is so much more of it when it comes to Abbott. You know, um, he was the star of the show for sure. Has we, weren't, Gil- we weren't struggling for him. Has, has Gillard seen the film? So Gillard's got this very weird relationship with this film because she's supported it the whole way through in that she's allowed everyone to speak to me very candidly. Um, but she has always hated being the victim that's so anathema to her character. And so 
One of um, her advisors described this film as, imagine if the worst breakup you've ever had happened <laughs> and then someone made a film about it. Yeah. That's what it's like <laughs> for Gillard. But, but, and it's also, isn't Gillard just travelling the world, going to the world's best dinner parties, you know, has influential friends, like she's okay? <laughs> yeah, oh, she is totally okay mm. and she is doing great work. You yeah. Know, she's, she, and, and it is all around this stuff. She's done... Um, a book recently about leadership, women and leadership, and she's working for um, girls and women's education around the world. So she's doing pretty incredible things. But, you know, I mean, interestingly, I started this film and I maintain that it's not, it's not just about Gillard. It's not a biographical film. It's about women and leadership. And, and, and Gillard happened to be the leader but that could have been Julie Bishop or it could have been, yeah. you know, Jenny Macklin or it could have been any other personality. It just happened to be Julia Gillard. But if you look at the scoreboard as well, I mean, it hung Parliament and passed an extraordinary amount of legislation and important legislation. She got a massive amount done. I mean, she's often been compared to, you know, the school prefect and she really was the school prefect who kind of thought everyone would behave if she behaved. Mm. And... Um, yeah. Okay, tell us where we can see Strong Female Lead. So it will be aired on SBS on Sunday night at 8.30. Um, it will also be available on demand on SBS and after that. And it's also going to be at film festivals um, with really interesting panels of people speaking afterwards in Sydney, in Brisbane, in Canberra and hopefully in other cities as well. Yeah, people want to chat once they've seen it. Yeah, that's we've found that people have a lot to say after they've watched yeah. this film. Strong female lead, uh, the, the director is Tosca Luby. Thanks heap, Tosca. No worries. Melbourne's own Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. Here for his scheduled food interlude, we welcome to breakfast as Gabby, gastronome, Michael Harden. Morning, Michael. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for that one. <laughs> I'm getting a list going, so going to be read at my funeral. <laughs> Good. Uh, what's on your mind this exciting week? Well, I'm kind of pretending that it's just on my mind this week, but it's sort of like, you know, it's on my mind most of the time, which is this week is Negroni week. Ooh. I sort of feel like I live Negroni life. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, it's um, it is quite it is sort of my favourite time of the year in Granny Week, even though it's only been going for a couple of couple of years. It mm. sort of um, started, I think it was about 2013, something like that, in the states as, as a it's like a charity event and everything. But um, which is great to be able to feel virtuous while downing a Negroni. Um, but I also think that it's just sort of it's always a good idea to have a Negroni in your life, being one of the great cocktails of the world, I think, up there with a martini as uh, the sort of cocktail that you should have in your repertoire of something that you need to need to be able to make. Yes. Impress people. What do you do with the orange? I mean, do you, do you eat the orange and then use the peel or you just take off a bit of peel and throw away the orange? Um... I would like to say that I take the peel off and use the orange, but I often sort of find that I've got this sort of naked, shriveling orange sitting on the bench for a whole week. And then uh, eventually uh, I guiltily throw it in the bin. So. I don't know how, I really want to make that a metaphor for life right now, this naked, shriveling orange that gets thrown in the bin, but I don't know how to do it. It's just a great oh, visual. God. Oh, my God. So what is the, what's the secret to making a great at-home Negroni? 
you just um, the good thing about I think one of the best things about Negroni is that it's a, it's a really simple recipe. Um, you know, it's quite hard to muck it up, um, but at the same time, you can make it better as well by being sort of careful about the way that you chill it and that. So, sort of the classic um, Negroni recipe is equal parts gin, Campari, and sweet vermouth. So it's like usually like the the classic one is like so you're using a, a gin that you don't want too much fuss and nonsense going on with the botanicals in it. So you're looking at a, probably a London dry gin, which is sort of mostly juniper and citrus in note. And then you've got Campari, um, which everybody knows and loves, and then the um, then the sweet vermouth, which is um, it's usually the red well, like a rosso vermouth, vermouth rosso. Um, and then you put the in equal parts and then you want to chill it down. You can either, a lot of people like to build it in the glass, which is good because it's quicker to get to um, <laughs> at the end. So you can just go straight into it. You don't have to, there's no sort of mess and fuss with the pouring and stuff. And uh, so you build it in the glass with ice. Probably I prefer with the ice, the bigger the ice block you can get, the better. Um, and make sure that you stir it around rather than you know it's like if you ever see anybody um shaking a negroni you want to scratch them from your friendship list i thought you were just gonna say scratch them scratch them well you could scratch them too so negroni week is i mean why do you care about negroni week you in the pocket of big vermouth or something what's the big vermouth yeah, that's that's the, my entire. That's my reason for being. <laughs> I, I am an, a Campari agent. Um, it was yeah, it was a sort of like in 2013 it was started. It was a Campari um, kind of you know advertising thing, blah blah blah. But it does. It also raises money for charity. So it's um it started off with about 120 venues in the states. And, uh, and it's now um, they're up to around 15,000 venues worldwide in 42 different countries. And what happens is that anybody that signs up to Negroni Week for this week, when a customer orders a Negroni at that bar or sort of these days over the, you know, sort of when you order a cocktail in, um, they donate money to the charity of your choice. So you have a, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different charities that they use it. The one in, if that's sort of the major charity that's associated with um, Negroni Week in Australia is Oz Harvest, which is the company that picks up excess food from restaurants and, and takes it around and that mm. sort of stuff. So, so there is, that's, that's why it's sort of like, I think it's like, you know, it's, it combines, you know, feeling virtuous with feeling drunk, yes. so, which, is all, which is great. Is there a Negroni that they experiment with that misses the mark? There's many Negronis they experiment that miss the mark. I sort of like I I don't mind a little bit. Like you know, the, as I was saying, it's like it's quite a robust drink. So there's some people that go, you want more gin and less Campari and vermouth, and there's other ones like I like. There's a Negroni that I really like, which is I I've never I sort of heard that it's called a Fergroni because it is um, Fergus Henderson, um, the chef in England, um, kind of invented it where he. Um, takes out the sweet vermouth and puts um, punta mess in, which is an Italian bitter vermouth. So it really bumps up the bitter factor of the Negroni because it's like some, I thought like, I think you can find Negronis can be a little sweet because the Campari is quite syrupy. So this sort of the like um, 
putting in uh, different vermouths is one of my favourite things. Like I kind of, I tend towards the bitter, which, you know, most people in my would probably understand that. Mm. But um, it's uh, the, 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 but there's some other good ones. There's some other good versions. Like there's a bar in the city called Romeo Lane that does a peach Negroni, which is absolutely, like I, to start with, I thought that is disgusting and should be banned. Um, but scratch it's, actually, it's done with a peach flavoured vermouth. And it is completely delicious. They can knock your socks off a bit. Uh, And so is there a good food pairing for them so that they don't, you know, you don't slide off your chair? They're really good. They're actually really good to drink with pizza. So, you know, I kind of like I like like a margarita pizza with that. They're also very good with anything salty. So, you know... um, say, like a salty cheese, like Pecorino Romano, that sort of stuff. It's sort of like it's really good. Um, (laughs) Grissini, you know, kind of anything like, you know, salty, you know, cured pork products, you know, that that sort of stuff, all very good for a Negroni. Um, But, you know, you also do get the food factor of the orange peel. So so for some that's enough food for, you know, when you're drinking a Negroni. Yes. Do you have an oversized ice cube tray? I do. I do. I've got one of those, um, and uh, it's it's cubes. I can't quite come at the the spherical ones. Yeah. It's sort of like it seems like just a bit too much work. <laughs> it seems like a fancy drink if you've got those big ice blocks, don't you think? Absolutely, it always does make Negroni out feel really special. Mm. And like, and if you and if you do like just a little flourish with your garnish as well, it's sort of like because the, the the right way to do a Negroni garnish is is you do I that you peel the the rind off like as, as as little pith as possible on there, and then you I use a usually use a potato peeler, which is probably you know bartenders would reel back in horror at my you know terrible philistine behaviour, but it's good for me. Um, and then you um, you twist it over the top of the drink, and then you stand it upright in the drink. So that way you've got like the oils coming out of the skin, sort of coat the top of the drink, and you get that that, that aroma of, of citrus. And then also, if you had it standing up in the drink, it's kind of um, in your you're breathing it in as you're drinking yeah. Negroni. So that's sort of like the correct way to do it. There's other people that sort of you know like to there's there's some people that like to burn the the orange peel like put a put a put it over a candle or a lighter or whatever um which is sort of like it intensifies the orange flavor but you also i find that it, you get a bit of a sort of added sort of smoky kind of burnt flavor to it which i'm not mm. sure is one always of, great one of our texts has suggested baking the orange in a low oven with sugar and cinnamon until crispy i don't know if that's to put i don't know if it's the leftover orange or the or the orange that you put in would you would you do anything to the orange peel other than burn it or? Um, I wouldn't because that, you know, the, the idea of sugar and cinnamon kind of that stuff going, that's sort of like it feels like, you know, you've got your sa- – that's the Santa Negroni. Okay. Um, you know, it's Santa, kind of, isn't it? It's, what about this? There's an inquiry. Can you swap orange peel for triple sec? Um, well, you could, but it's not a Negroni yeah. any longer. So I'm sort of a little, little bit of a purist on that one. It's sort of like there are, like, you know, because there are other versions of this drink, but they, they are rightly called other names. Like, so there's, a, there's one called, a, like, a famous one called a Boulevardier, mm. which is actually a delicious drink, and it's, um, it swaps out the gin for bourbon. Yeah. So you've got it sort of like a darker, darker sort of, like, less sweet drink. And, uh, and then there's other ones like a... Um, there's a chinarita, which is um, with tequila 
and um, and with Campari and then with Chinna, which mm. is the which is another kind of bitter amaro sort of drink as well. So there are things that you can do. Triple sec. Um, you know, some people like in the early days, they sort of like some bartenders like to put a bit of bitters, orange bitters in there on top. Triple sec, I think, would add too much sweetness. Okay. Would you ever, did you ever uh, do a lot of writing at cocktail bars or reading or is it more of a social place for you? I tend to like to socialise. I kind of, I've got, I've always had that sort of really romanticised American bar kind of thing where you kind of, you know, sit up at the bar and, you know, talk about your uh, tragic, you know, private life with the bartender and, you know, kind of look at the con, you know, look at all the other fellow losers at the bar with you and just feel at one. Can't wait to open up again. Uh, Well, Negroni Week details are negroniweek.com. I think there are a ton of recipes there, including a Negroni slushy. Yeah, yeah, there's sort of, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of people that really need to take a good hard long. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Michael Harden, thank you very much. Yeah, no worries, great to talk. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website. <laughs>